Welcome back to Behind the Wings, a podcast produced by Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum in Denver, Colorado. And we've got a lot to explore. Stories about how history shapes aviation today, trailblazers in space, and close-up looks at iconic aircraft of the past, present, and future. Come on, it's time to go Behind the Wings. All right, it's episode 14, and we are so glad to have you along for the ride. Now, make sure you subscribe, and if you like the show, give us a rating, all right? Or share it with a friend. It's the best way for new people to discover the show, and we really do appreciate that. Boy, we are excited to bring you an intergalactic episode today. Hey, I'm your host, Rick Crandall. With me, as always, is Wings Over the Rockies president and CEO, John Barry. John, what do we have for folks today? Well, we're going back to space again, but we're talking about the James Webb Space Telescope, JWST, a next-generation deep space telescope that NASA launched in December 2021. It's hard to believe it's been more than a year. It's the most powerful telescope ever built with the ability to see further and clearer into space than any previous telescope ever made. Its advanced design sensors and technology will allow it to time travel. Concept's going to be explained to us, but how do you look back in time to some of the first galaxies that formed, learning about exoplanets that could be capable of supporting life and many more things? Yeah, there is a lot to explore with this one. And the scientific research is only really getting started. I, I can't wait to see what we'll discover from the web in coming years. This telescope truly has the potential to rewrite the textbooks. Our guest today is Lee Feinberg. Lee is the NASA Optical Telescope Element Manager for the James Webb Space Telescope at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, a role he has been in since 2002. Earlier in his career, Lee was part of the optical team that repaired the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, isn't that amazing? The Webb Telescope has been in the news a lot the past couple of years, but we have to remember that people have dedicated their careers to this project. Over 20, 30 years, people have been working on this, and that exciting uh, aspect is it works. Yep, absolutely. In this episode, we'll explore the design, deployment, and discoveries of the James Webb Space Telescope. This is going to be cool. Let's get started. Lee Feinberg, welcome to the show. I'm going to jump right into this because I know we have a lot of ground to cover, but maybe uh, an introduction of yourself, how you got started working on space telescopes. How did this all come about? Um, well, it's a bit of a long history. I, you know, I studied optics, but when I got out of school, I moved down to Washington, D.C., and I started working on the ground system for the Hubble Space Telescope. I thought it would be kind of an interesting job. And Hubble launched, and it had this big optical problem. And uh, the NASA folks knew me from working on the ground system part, but my real background where I'd done a lot of my student work was on testing mirrors and testing optics. And so I got hired by NASA to help fix the Hubble Space Telescope. And so I worked on the first servicing mission for Hubble. And also on the second one, I was the instrument manager for STIS, which was a space telescope imaging spectrograph, which is still working today, decades later. Wow. Um, so that's how I started on, on space telescopes. I really started on the instrument side. So now we have to remember that when Hubble first launched, it didn't work as planned. The photos were coming back blurry, uh, an issue that was corrected with space shuttle missions and spacewalks where astronauts, who were sometimes called Hubble huggers, were able to fix the issues. 
You probably know this story well as you were a, a member of the optics team that determined the optical prescription to correct Hubble's focusing issues. But with the Webb telescope, going to visit and manually fix the telescope, not an option. The Webb orbits Earth at about a million miles away, whereas the Hubble, to put it in perspective, is in orbit only about 332 miles from Earth. So when this thing launched, it was important that it worked from the start. So, Lee, if you could describe the process of testing and verifying the telescope's components and systems, what had to go right? Well, you know, I gave a talk where we dug into the lessons learned from what happened with the optics problem. The, there was this report by Lou Allen, who was the former director of JPL, and, you know, we kind of dug into what did they say were the issues. Things like transparency and, you know, uh, how they did their cross-checks. And so we really tried to take a very disciplined, disciplined approach to all those things. Um, but what I'll tell you what really made it difficult on us was as costs grew, there was a lot of pressure not to do cross-checks and to not take the time to be double-checking ourselves. And in fact, I remember even once there was some criticism, you know, when our cost grew, there was some, there was some criticism in the media by even very senior people at NASA saying, oh, well, you know, the people working on this worked on Hubble and they're too conservative. And we had a core of people and many of us did work on the Hubble service emissions, if I'm honest, on the, on the Goddard side, on the NASA side. But we never wavered from understanding that this was such an important mission and it was, and we couldn't fix it that we were not going to be pressured into taking shortcuts. And we just stayed disciplined. There was a lot of attention to detail. And, you know, it, it created a lot. Of, I think that was the main tension in the whole development from start to finish. You know, at, in, in any given phase, I could tell you stories about that. But at the end of the day, we just knew that we didn't want to play dice with this thing. You know, <laughs> we wanted, and I used to tell the story that I had heard that there was one of the people that worked on Hubble when they launched it, he was at the launch and he says, I hope that mirror's okay. Wow. And when I heard that story, I thought to myself, I never want to be in the position of launching something where I'm worried it's not going to work. Yep. I want to know that I've tested it and I've analyzed it at least as well as possible. I mean, there's always, there's always room for things that you miss, but you try and come up with ways that you don't, including inspections at the end. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the big deployments, the things that you worry about, the snags and stuff, are the result of what if somebody doesn't put everything back properly the last time? Well, we added additional inspections mm -hmm. to prevent there being problems. So you you try it, you try and mitigate all those things that way. Oh, that's great. Well, let's start off by discussing some of the unique challenges of designing and building this amazing telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope. You know, you started working, as you mentioned, you know, with the uh, James Webb Space Telescope, JWST, we'll be referring to it that way, about 20 years ago. And we, of course, already had the Hubble, which you also worked on, as you mentioned. But, uh, you know, a different mission set, different capabilities, and, of course, a very, very different design. Tell us a bit about the design and development process and what makes the Webb Telescope different from Hubble, what design challenges came up along the way? You know, you always start with the science you're trying to do. And um, it really is worth emphasizing this because what's coming out of the JWST telescope now is exactly the science that it was designed to really go after, which was the really early universe. Um, and in fact, 
it was actually after we fixed Hubble that they took these very deep images of the universe with Hubble, and they were looking at these galaxies that were more and more shifted into the infrared wavelength, shifted longer in wavelength, which they believed meant it came farther back in time, and they wanted to go even farther than Hubble can see. And Hubble just can't see infrared wavelengths very well because it's a warm telescope. And it turns out to see infrared wavelengths, you're actually looking at heat, a little bit like the night vision goggles that you have. And so if you, if you want to look at heat, you want to look at infrared light, which is really heat, you can't have mirrors that are warm or they're going to create heat and all you're going to see are the mirrors and you're not going to see the galaxies. Mm. So we needed a super cold telescope and it needed to be huge. Uh, you know, the, the astronomers did these calculations of like how big the mirror needed to be to get the resolution and collect enough light. And they, they determined it needed to be about six and a half meters in diameter. Mm. And so from the beginning, we knew we needed a telescope that was bigger than could fit in a rocket at the time because the, the biggest fairings were, were smaller than six and a half meters. So it had to unfold. And then we had to cool it to these incredibly low temperatures, minus 400 degrees Fahrenheit to be cold enough to see in the infrared. And that really, those two things, along with the fact that the rockets can only take so much mass. So here you are building something much bigger than Hubble, but the James Webb Space Telescope is almost half the mass, half the weight of Hubble. Hmm. Um, yet it's six times the collecting area and it's running at minus 400 degrees Fahrenheit. And so that there, there was a lot of design constraints, which meant we needed to use very light mirrors, very light structure, we had to have a way to cool it. Brilliant idea that some folks had early on to cool it was to build what's called an open telescope. And, you know, all the previous telescopes, Hubble and Spitzer, they all had these baffles. Um, and it's certainly the way you want to go when you can because it blocks things like Mercury meteorites. Um, but the open telescope concept of, of JWST allows it to emit heat to the universe and cool the mirrors. And so that was the way we were able to cool everything was by having it be an open telescope without a baffle. Um, and that's why it unfolds and then it just is open to the sky, essentially. And we have a large sun shield. It's about the size of a tennis court and it's five layers and it unfolds. But that blocks the, the sun and the earth light from hitting this very cold telescope. Hmm. So that that's kind of how we... We started with science, and then we worked our way towards the architecture. Yeah, great explanation. Yeah, and I'm imagining in this design process a room full of really smart guys like you sitting around saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, I got a cool idea. What if we could, uh, you know, how much of that give and take and, and really d designing and, and inventing things that didn't exist went into this? You know, I like to describe JWST as a 20-year research and development effort. You know, we, we were constantly getting criticized because of cost and schedule, but we were literally doing R&D from start to finish. And it wasn't just the design and the early technologies, which of which there were 10 that we had to invent and, you know, develop. But it was that we had to develop technology to test the technology. And then we had to figure out a way to test the telescope that was practical. So we reinvented how we tested it. But you're absolutely right. It was never, there's never a single person that just makes decisions. It's always teams of people. Sure. And I think a lot of the success was the result of getting teams of people to work together and pass their information to the next team and then to the next team. And each one of these teams were made up of some of the brightest, smartest people. We were able to get some of the, the, the best people that NASA had and 
you know, the best young people. And so it was brilliant people who were willing to work together. Mm -hmm. And now we're reaching out to the deepest, darkest part of the universe. And, you know, and you explained some of the challenges on the logistics. I mean, we launched this thing and it's the size of a large truck or half the size of a 737 to give our audience a perspective of the size. And, you know, and, and it couldn't launch intact. You know, it had to have the opening that you've alluded to. And I was told if any one of those unfoldings failed, you couldn't use the, the whole system. So maybe talk a little bit about some of the risk and the, and the concerns you had when this thing was launched. You know, was it that vulnerable that even if one unfolding didn't work, the whole thing would work? Yeah, I mean, there was a very large number. We call them single point failures. These are things... Uh, like a little separation device that has to, you have a little fuse and then it has to separate. And there was over 300 of these throughout the observatory. And that got a lot of attention by a lot of people and made a lot of people nervous. But I'll tell you that for folks like me and the people who were, who spent a lot of time on the, you know, in the clean rooms and working with the engineers directly, I was less worried about those release devices because we had spent so much time you know, working the quality controls when we manufactured them and really focused on them. I worried more on somebody putting a piece of tape in the wrong place <laughs> that snagged the thing when we went to deploy it, mm-hmm. if you see what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You know, it, we, we call that workmanship. But I worried a lot more that, you know, if we were going to have a problem, it would be because of something that maybe we couldn't even anticipate. And, and I call it soft structure. Soft structure are things like the thermal blanketing, the tape, the cable ties, all these like loose things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, James D is literally held together by string ties and tape. (laughs) I mean, when you really get to it, it's so lightweight and so massive. And so, um, you know, a lot of ways that's what I was worried about. And trust me, massive missions have been lost because of a piece of insulation that covered up uh, an instrument or, you know, something as simple as that. So in a lot of ways, to the people who are really the insiders, we were, we were more worried about those things, to be honest with you. You know, I'm that kid who grew up in the 60s who stood out in the front yard and looked up at the moon and was convinced he could see Neil Armstrong walking, right? <laughs> and now you've got mm-hmm. uh, these amazing instruments that are up seeing so much further back. But in spite of all your preparation, in spite of everything you analyzed and checked and cross-checked, that launch went spectacularly well. And I've got to imagine it felt pretty good on uh, Christmas Eve 2021 to see <laughs> that thing take off. Yeah, it was, I, you know, I described the whole commissioning as magical. It, it, it truly was magical in that Christmas day when we launched and the big moment of, you know, surrealism was you have to understand, we didn't originally even expect to have video feed of Jib's team moving away from the fairing. We added those cameras only about a year and a half before we launched as we were working some final issues with membranes. Uh, and actually, Arion added them. As it pulled away, because it was released so smoothly, there's an autonomous way in which once your spacecraft isn't rotating in three different degrees of freedom, that the solar rays will autonomously deploy. And the solar ray deployed while the video was still going. So here we are watching in the control room the video feed, and there's the solar ray deploying. And some of the power folks already knew this because they're getting telemetry telling them there's power because that came faster than the video feed. 
But literally the whole room broke into applause, and I'll never forget that. That was such a, a magical moment because we didn't expect to be able to visualize that and see that. And, of course, you know, power and communication is what you mainly worry about um, that first day. It's all about, you know, with, with a launch, it's all about power and calm. And, uh, but, but we had a long way to go from there. That was just the beginning. Yeah, we had two weeks yeah. of major deployments and two weeks of the 132 actuator facility deploying. And then we had all the optical work to do. So it was, we knew it was just the beginning, but it, sure. was, it was magical. So that, that smooth deployment of, of web, what, what does that mean? I, I mean, this, this kind of seems like an obvious question, but maybe not. Uh, what does that mean for the longevity of the telescope and, and, you know, the resulting research projects that'll be able to uh, be included in coming years? Yeah. I mean, one of the key things is propellant. Um, you know, there are some ideas for ways you could refuel but in general you know jvst was designed not to be serviced and refueled and so we do have limited amount of propellant and because of a number of things that have lined up including a very successful launch we have not expended a lot of fuel along the way and when we do our budgeting you know we originally designed jvst five-year life 10-year goal and and within a couple of weeks, we had done calculations to say we thought it would last at least 20 years. And people had even gone public with 25 years. So so we're in great shape for a very long life from the point of fuel. Now, there are other things. There's all these electronics and mechanisms, and they all have to work. Many of them are graceful or have redundancy, but um, there's no guarantees that we're going to last that long. But at least from a fuel perspective, which is the thing you most worry about, we are in absolutely great shape. By the way, Rick will volunteer to go service it when you need to do that. Heck yeah, I'll go. <laughs> you bet I will. <laughs> you know, it, it, now it's up there. I mean, it's it's up there. And it discussed the scientific goals of the James Webb Telescope. The possibilities are pretty incredible. I mean, how do you explain to somebody, you're looking back in time, I mean, to the beginnings of the universe. I mean, you can say it, but, you know, it's kind of hard to grasp the concept that you can look back in time. It is really a hard concept for how, how is it that you can look back in time? You know, if you think about it, let's say you have a lamp in your room and you turn the lamp on. Those photons, they travel at a very fast speed, but they do, it does take them a certain amount of time to get to your eye, right? So you'll see a photon in your eye, but... When you see the image of the lamp, if you look at a lamp, you're actually seeing it as it was a fraction of a second before, because it took the photon some time to get to you. And so when we look back in time, we're really looking at these photons that came from some of the most earliest objects when the universe was maybe only a couple hundred million years old. And so that's why we're looking back in time in a sense. Um, we're really looking in the present, but from photons that came from the very early universe. And so that's that's the first thing. But I think that actually, that whole concept, which I mentioned was one of the main drivers for JWST, the big surprise or surprises have all been how big and how advanced these galaxies are and how early in the universe that they're finding that. It's inconsistent with their cosmological models of how the universe evolved. And that is what, I am super excited about it. And I'm such a geek that I spent my holidays like reading papers that people publish from all over the world, taking JVST data and saying, what are the implications of this? You know, like 
what what does it mean that our cosmology is there's something wrong with cosmology? But the other big one is exoplanets. And, you know, JMST is really the beginnings of measuring exoplanets really truly scientifically, like looking at, we call it spectra, you know, the different wavelengths of light coming out of these exoplanets and looking at their atmospheres. Honestly, when we started on JWST, literally the first detection ever of an exoplanet was about the year JWST got going. And I remember I was working on JWST when someone using Spitzer had done the first what they call transit measurement, whereas the planet passed in front of a star, they were able to measure the difference in the wavelengths that were absorbed by that planet versus when it was behind the star. And we realized, wow, we can do that with JWST. That was very early development, but we were already we had already designed the basic architecture and we were tweaking it in the instrument to try and make better measurements. But JWST is not really designed to go after Earth-like planets. So you do have to understand that. We're not going to find Earth-like planets. There's actually a recommendation for a future telescope by the National Academy to go after that problem. Mm. And that's actually my next thing that I'm starting to work on is that. But what we do know is that JWST is doing an amazing job doing these transits. Its, it's sensitivity is even better than we expected. Mm. So we're waiting for that data. But but. All sorts of exoplanet studies are going on all the time now. Different exoplanets where they're studying atmospheres. We found carbon dioxide. We found water around some of the first exoplanets we looked at. So we'll see how all of that goes. And these are just examples of some of the things. There's so many different areas of science that JWST is covering. It really covers everything. There are proposals every day for everything. You know, and... That teased me up perfectly for what I, I wanted to ask. So there's got to be some pretty fierce, I would imagine, competition from folks who would like, you know, Webb to take a look at maybe some of their areas of focus, right? The the uh, Space Telescope yeah. Science Institute and, and, you know, to help us understand a little bit, if you can, how, the, how projects are selected. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that want access to Webb. And that is a great question, and actually it's very timely because the original science that was done this first year, they call that cycle one, that science was determined much of it years before. Many of it was developed as part of what we call early release science so that we could show its capabilities. But cycle two, they actually have a call that went out a couple months ago and is due in a couple weeks for proposals from astronomers to use JWST starting roughly in July. That's when cycle two starts, roughly. Maybe maybe give or take a month or two. And so just about every astronomer I know right now is working on proposals. <laughs> and I think it's going to be, this is my prediction, it's going to be the most proposed cycle of any telescope effort. And I say that because the first cycle had a huge number of proposals, but I've talked to a lot of astronomers who said, oh, I didn't propose them during the first cycle because I wanted to see if it even worked and how well it worked. But I don't know a single astronomer who's not working on multiple proposals. And once these proposals, they, they actually go to the special, they have these committees, they call them the TAX, Telescope uh, Allocation Committees, and they're independent astronomers who evaluate the proposals. And the proposals are evaluated blindly. You don't see who proposed them which makes it a fairly fair process. And they have these teams of people that evaluate proposals in different areas. There'll be proposals in exoplanets and early universe, and the best proposals will get selected. It's highly competitive. There are proposers from all over the world, 
and many of these are collaborations of many people that propose and and uh, so that's how it, that's how it happens, and it'll be fascinating to see the cycle two what it what it is made of. I'm I'm excited to see. You know, Lee, we are all familiar with NASA spinoffs from the International Space Station and other NASA missions. You know, NASA's spinoffs are technologies developed for space exploration that benefit us all on Earth, often in the form of commercial products. They have profiled more than 2,000 spinoffs that our listeners probably use every day, from sunglasses to sneakers. Are there potential practical applications of this telescope's findings in fields such as agriculture, energy, medicine, or others? It's an excellent question, and I will tell you that if you look at the telescope part that I worked on all these years, which was highly technological, there are many spinoffs, and they're really interesting. One of the one of my favorite ones is when we were testing the mirrors, we had to build an optical device that could scan mirrors and measure the edges of the mirrors at an earlier state of processing. And we developed this thing that could scan the surface of the mirror. It was called a scanning Shack Hartman interferometer, very complicated name for something like that. But that small company that built that got bought by a biomedical company. And that instrument got put into something that does LASIK eye surgery. And so the way they measure your eye, your surface of your eye, you know, if you have astigmatism, is using this kind of device. And in the field of optics, I'll tell you, there was a large number of these kinds of spinoffs. This might have been the most visible. And some of them are more incremental. You know, we built new capabilities for measuring mirrors that are measuring mirrors that are being used to make computer chips. You know, in microlithography. Or, you know, with that, in, that are vibration insensitive, which is what we needed. Or... You know, the facility that we built to polish the mirrors, we built these eight different stations for polishing and testing mirrors. And all of that got bought by a, a big a company that builds the illumination lenses for lenses that make large screen televisions and make um, large windows that they make into your iPhone. So, you know, our capability created this factory where there's now jobs here in, you know, California. And technology that allows us to do this manufacturing. And in, and so in the field of optics, you know, and I, and I could go to other fields, integrated modeling, you know, the levels of modeling that we did here and how many integrated models is another good one. Cryogenics, some of the cold physics and the material property stuff we did. There were a lot of spin-offs. And then, of course, there's all the defense stuff. You know, there's, of course, synergies with the defense. And they learn from things we did and we learn from them. But, you know, maybe the most important spinoff from JWST is inspiring young people to get excited about math mm-hmm. and science. And that's the one that makes me the most excited. And I'll tell you, when I go talk to kids who are six or seven years old and they know more about the instruments in JWST <laughs> than I do, <laughs> that's how I know that they're paying attention. That's good. So now... A couple of years ago, Queen, the band, yeah. Queen, comes to Denver, and Brian May's <laughs> playing, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the show, he stops, and he said, I've got to tell you, I'm so excited. I've been at Lockheed Martin up in Waterton Canyon all day today, and, well, I invited these rocket scientists to come to the <laughs> show tonight, and he had them all stand up, and the arena went nuts for rocket scientists, and I, I know with your music background, you'd appreciate the fact that <laughs> yeah. I was at a concert where rocket scientists got a standing over. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Jimmy Buffett picked up on JWST and showed some of the images. Yeah. And uh, just tell you a little personal story. I've been playing in, rock, in bands my whole life. 
And one of the bands I play with, which is we we play all Almond Brothers music. We we played at the Bitter End in New York City in December, nice. which has been like wow. a dream of mine to play in Manhattan. So uh, yeah, so I've I've gone from JWST <laughs> to playing in Manhattan at the Bitter End Look in one you. year. So so I, yeah, I could I could relate to Brian May a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to wrap it up with this. Thank you so much for this great conversation. I this is certainly going to be a popular podcast, no doubt about it. But you know, it kind of puts it all into perspective. Not only how small we are, but how lucky we are to have this planet that we live on, where we can. Uh, work and play, be comfortable. And as we mentioned, we're really just at the beginning of discovering things. So as as we get towards the end, actually the end of the podcast, to tell me about your dream for the future of space telescopes or even space exploration. Well, you know, part of the philosophy of JWST being segmented is it's, it's scalable. And, you know, it's always been the vision that if we could build a telescope out of segments, over time, we could make bigger telescopes, which is exactly what happened on the ground, right? They went from 2.4 meter to 8 meter. Now they're building 30 meter class telescopes. And so it's always been the vision that JBST was the first of its kind of six and a half meter telescopes, but we want to build bigger ones. And eventually we want to connect these telescopes using different technologies, ranging from interferometry to quantum mechanics. But someday I'm hopeful that we can uh, take images of a, pl a planet just like the Earth that is orbiting another star in high definition, and we can see what's going on in that planet. And I think we're on a path. It may take hundreds of years, but I think we're on a path to do that technologically. JWST being successful is going to continue us to take the next step. And then generations after that. And I, and the reason why I think these things are so powerful is not because we're necessarily going to go live on that planet because we don't know how to get there. But when we do these successful things like JWST, they remind humans that when we work together, we can do incredible things. And I hope they remind us that we can also do things on our own planet. <laughs> Um, including solving things like climate change. So, you know, hopefully we're inspiring people around the world about what humans can do when they work together, but also have a vision towards Perfect. seeing other planets. Thank you, Lee Feinberg, for joining us. That was really cool. You know, I just loved getting Lee's personality and just the excitement in his answers and, and the enthusiasm and just how much this really has meant to him, this career of his, and, and his clear description of all the parts and pieces. I, I just really thought listening to Lee talk was pretty cool. What were your takeaways, Jai? You know what I really admire is that you get down to the personal level of the individual, and uh, Lee did a great job of giving his insights, and, and it's, it's just fun to hear not just the, the standard story, but the deep personal connection that they have with it, but also the fact that you know, we have a tool that can look back in time. Yeah. And it still blows me away even to say <laughs> that. And uh, it's such an exciting time to be alive. And I'm just uh, grateful for the opportunity you have to be on our show today. Wonderful, yep. wonderful uh, session. Absolutely. And 
rats. We've run out of time for that one. That's going to do it, folks, for episode 14 of the Behind the Wings podcast. Thanks for listening. Now, be sure to visit wingsmuseum.org slash podcast to join the conversation or access the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode of Behind the Wings. Head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to subscribe and leave a review. It helps us a lot. We do appreciate it. And hey, we'll see you next time on Behind the Wings.